Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Mary Cranston, board chair of the Commonwealth Club and firm senior partner of Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. We also welcome our listeners on the radio and invite everyone to visit us on the Internet at commonwealthclub.org. Now, it is my very great pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest, Rick Wagner, chairman and CEO of General Motors, Uh, Mr. Wagner was elected GM chairman in May of 2003 after serving as president and CEO since June of 2000. He is a GM lifer. He began his GM career as an analyst in the treasurer's office in New York in 1977. And by 1989, he had worked his way up to vice president in charge of finance for GM Europe. And soon thereafter, he became president of GM Brazil. He served as GM Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer from 1992 to 1994, and also had responsibility during those same years for worldwide purchasing. In 1994, he became President of North American Operations, and in 1998, he was elected President and COO. He has steered GM through times of great transition and is generally acknowledged as an innovative and courageous leader, so we're very lucky to have him today. Mr. Wagner was born in Wilmington, Delaware, and was raised in Richmond, Virginia. He received a bachelor's degree in economics from Duke University in 1975 and his his, uh, MBA from Harvard in 1977. He is a member of the Board of Trustees of Duke University and of the Detroit Country Day School. He's on the Board of Dean's Advisors at the Harvard Business School, and he is on the Board of Catalyst, which is the premier global think tank for women in business. So without further ado, please welcome Rick Wagner. This is a a low-cost and more efficient adjustable podium. (laughs) Mary, thank you very much. Really, really great to be here. You know, I've been looking forward to the opportunity, uh, but I have to admit I had a few anxious moments leading up to today. Uh, When you think about it, the Commonwealth Club is, in fact, a very prestigious organization, the nation's oldest public affairs forum, as you all know. And to be frank, California and the auto industry haven't always seen eye-to-eye on everything. All of this actually reminds me of a story. It's about a cowboy who appeared before St. Peter at the Pearly Gates. St. Peter asked him, have you done anything of particular merit in your life? The guy says, well, once for sure. Um, that, there was the time that I came upon a group of bikers who were threatening a young woman. I told them to leave her alone, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't listen to me. So I went up to the biggest, meanest, toughest-looking biker, tore off his bandana, threw it in the dirt. Then I yanked off his sunglasses and kicked over his bike. I looked at the other guys and said, the rest of you guys back off, or I'll let you have it. St. Peter was pretty impressed at this. He said, when did this happen? Cowboy said, just a couple of minutes ago. (laughs) Okay, so I'm not a cowboy, and you don't at least look like bikers, uh, so I think everything's going to work out just fine today. Actually, the truth 
um, is that I'm here today primarily because of a most interesting meeting I had with leaders of the Commonwealth Club's Climate One project back in February this year. Special thanks to Mary and her fellow club members for hosting me that day, and thanks to Club Vice President Greg Dalton for facilitating the meeting and helping arrange my appearance here today. Back at that February meeting, the club members and I had a chance to get to know each other and exchange views on issues that are really important to both of us. And I had the opportunity to dispel some myths about today's General Motors. For example, myth number one, despite what you might think while driving San Francisco's highways, GM actually does sell cars in California. <laughs> Granted, not many. In fact, I'm not particularly happy about this, but GM's market share in California is less than it is in China. That said, California has always been and will always be a very important market for us, and so you can bet we're always thinking of new and creative ways to improve our positions in this very, very important market. Myth number two, despite what you may have heard from some of our critics, GM has no plans whatsoever to throw a going-out-of-business sale. In fact, in recent years, we've addressed a number of long-standing, seemingly impossible challenges and are now driving a massive restructuring and turnaround of our U.S. business. We've negotiated new labor agreements with our UAW partners that have, in a lot of ways, rewritten the rules of competition in our business. We've cut $9 billion in structural costs with plans to cut another $5 billion more over the next several years. And we've responded in what I think is a pretty creative way to reduce our so-called legacy costs associated with pensions and retiree health care. Interesting point on this last item. GM spent over the last 15 years $103 billion to pay U.S. pension and post-retiree health care obligations here in the U.S. That's an average of about $7 billion a year, which, which interestingly is just a little less than our entire annual global engineering budget. Starting in 2010, we expect our cash spending on U.S. pension and retiree health care to decline to about $1 billion a year. That's a savings of about $6 billion, which makes us dramatically more competitive and gives us a lot more dry powder to invest in new products and technology. It really changes the game for us. Myth number three, while it is true that GM turns 100 years old later this year, it is not true that our car designs will do the same. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've introduced some of the most exciting products in General Motors' long history. It's my view, but it's not just my view, if, if you think about the reaction of the automotive press, for example. We began 2007 by winning both the North American Car and Truck of the Year awards with the Saturn Aura and Chevy Silverado. Then the next year, 2008, we won the North American Car of the Year, second year in a row then, this time with the all-new Chevy Malibu. We're very happy, by the way. The early sales of the Malibu sedan are very strong, actually even here in California, which we're really excited about. And the ongoing feedback we're getting from customers and media is very, very good. Beyond that, our, our new Cadillac CTS was named Motor Trends 2008 Car of the Year. The Buick Enclave Luxury Crossover was picked as Urban Wheels Truck of the Year. And the Chevy Corvette, along with the, the Malibu and the CTS, was picked as an automotive magazine all-star in one of the car, car and driver top ten best cars. And this may surprise some of you. Our high-tech Chevy Tahoe two-mode hybrid was named Green Car of the Year at the Los Angeles Auto Show last November. So all in all, a lot of progress on the product front, which has really encouraged our product development teams to raise the bar even higher for the next generation of our cars. Myth number four, General Motors is not contracting faster than the nation's subprime lending market. In fact, in 2007, GM sold more vehicles than any other automaker in both the U.S. and the world for the 77th year in a row. Globally, we sold more than 9 million cars and trucks in 2007 for the third year in a row, only the fourth time in our history. And maybe most interesting, of those sales, a record 59% were outside the U.S., a percentage that will continue to increase as we drive to, to accompany the growth in expanding markets around the world. In fact, we were the number one foreign manufacturer last year in many of the world's largest growing markets, places like China, Russia, and South America. Finally, myth number five, GM is not the enemy of California's environmental movement. In fact, it was in California a couple of years ago at the 2006 Los Angeles Auto Show 
when I announced that a critical element of General Motors' ongoing turnaround plan and a key part of our future strategy was our drive for energy and environmental leadership. At GM, we believe the global auto industry as a business necessity and as our obligation to society must develop alternative sources of propulsion based on diverse sources of energy to meet the world's rapidly growing demand for our products. That's exactly what we're doing at GM right now, and I'd like to spend my time this afternoon talking about this. As we look at the global energy and environmental picture today and consider the future of the automobile, one fact stands out above all others. Going forward, the auto industry can no longer rely almost exclusively on oil to supply the world's automotive energy requirements. This matter is getting plenty of attention for sure right here in the U.S., but make no mistake, it is a global issue. Energy supply, sustainable growth, CO2 emissions, fuel economy, these are topics of concern all around the world, as I learned firsthand in discussions with national and city leaders from Mumbai and Sao Paulo to Shanghai and Washington. I was in Beijing just two weeks ago to celebrate the opening of the China Automotive Energy Research Center, which is a collaborative project between General Motors, our Chinese joint venture partner, SAIC, and China's prestigious Tsinghua University. Our goal with this new research center is to develop a comprehensive automotive energy strategy that moves China away from its reliance on petroleum-based fuel and towards sustainable transportation. And that's just one example of the truly global concern for energy and the environment issues that we see today, as well as the enormous impact that the auto industry can have in bringing the latest technologies to emerging markets around the globe. Now, why emerging markets in particular? Consider that 2007 was the sixth consecutive year of record sales for glo the global auto industry, about 71 million units sold around the world. In the next five years, we project that global sales will grow to about 84 million units a year. That's about an, and about 80 percent of that increase, nearly 11 million new cars and trucks, will be in developing markets like China and India. This shows, of course, the enormous opportunity that our industry has, but also how, how highlights how important it is that we address the challenge of sustainability. Around the globe, there are a number of very promising solutions to the energy and environmental challenges we face. At GM, we're working hard on most of them, things like broad-scale application of hybrid technologies and the development of advanced biofuels. But the one technology that seems to generate the most interest here in California, and one that we're working very hard to bring to market, is electrically driven vehicles. This surprises a lot of people. I could have made it one of my myths about GM that I, that I began my speech with. This actually reminds me of another story. It seems that there were three friends that were talking one day, one of them got a little bit philosophical, and posed the following question. When you die, it's your funeral, what would you like people to say about you? Bill says, I'd like him to say, I was a wonderful husband and a great family man. Mary said, I'd like them to say, I was a terrific teacher who really made a difference in people's life. Larry said, I'd like him to say, look, he's moving. <laughs> well, despite movie titles to the contrary, the electric car is not dead at General Motors. After, as they say in Hollywood, a brief lull in the action, we've significantly expanded our commitment to electrically driven vehicles at General Motors and are now in the midst of a major transformation. We're moving for a company and an industry that for 100 years has been based on mechanically driven automobiles to one that will eventually be based on electrically driven vehicles. This is a big deal. Now, what do I mean by electrically driven vehicles? Glad you asked, because there are different kinds. Let me discuss two that we've been focusing on right now, starting with hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Now, a lot of people are confused by this, but yes, a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle is an electric car. It drives on electricity that's created by the fuel cell. In fact, electricity and hydrogen are actually interchangeable, and a fuel cell is, in some cases, in some ways, like a battery that stores electricity in the form of hydrogen. 
And the beauty of a fuel cell car is that the electricity is generated on board the vehicle without using petroleum-based fuel and without emissions. And like electricity, hydrogen can be made from diverse energy sources before it ever powers a vehicle. In short, hydrogen, like electricity, offers outstanding benefits beginning with the opportunity to diversify fuel sources upstream of the vehicle. In other words, the electricity that's used to drive the vehicle can be made from the best local fuel sources, wind, solar, natural gas, coal, nuclear, geothermal, hydroelectric, and so on. Since 2002, when we introduced a groundbreaking fuel cell concept called autonomy, we've been making steady progress toward our goal of developing fuel cell vehicles for real-world usage. Our latest fuel cell concept, the Chevy Sequel, is powered by our fourth-generation fuel cell. And today, we're in the process of putting Sequel's technology on the street by building it into our Chevy Equinox SUVs. The Equinox fuel cell has a 150-mile vehicle range, refuels in five to eight minutes, and is a fully-fledged, electrically-driven ZEV, zero-emissions vehicle. In January, we began delivering more than 100 of these vehicles to customers in California and the East Coast. Together, they'll constitute the world's largest fuel cell test fleet. To date, we've delivered 74 of these 100 vehicles that we'll eventually place in consumers' hands, including 60 that will be located here in California. Going forward, we'll continue to work with organizations like the California Hydrogen Highway and the California Fuel Cell Partnership to accelerate the development of a hydrogen infrastructure that matches the fuel cell vehicles that we and others are fast developing. The second electrically driven vehicle we're working hard to bring to market is one that's received a great deal of attention out here, and that's our Chevy Volt. I think it's fair to say, in fact, that no concept car in my rather long GM career has generated more excitement than the Volt here in the U.S. or actually as we show it around the world. Maybe some of, some of you actually saw the Volt concept that we brought to San Francisco last December. Volt is the first demonstration of our new family of electrically driven propulsion systems that we call E-Flex. The E in E-Flex stands for electric because all E-Flex vehicles will be driven by electricity. And the E-Flex is flexible because it is easily adapted to different sources of electricity. The electricity used to energize E-Flex vehicles can come directly from the power grid, or from a small motor running on biofuel or natural gas, or from an advanced clean diesel engine, or from a hydrogen fuel cell, and so on. So how does this E-Flex work? Well, like many other electronic devices, everything begins with a battery, like in the Chevy Volt. When running off a battery, when custom, which customers can charge in a standard electrical outlet, the Volt operates as a traditional battery electric vehicle with a driving range of about 40 miles. And that's important because three-quarters of Americans travel less than 40 miles in their daily commute. In that sense, the Volt would clearly have a tremendous impact on America's petroleum dependence. And if the driver of a Volt needs to go beyond 40 miles, the engine kicks in to supply the electricity to recharge the battery and keep the vehicle going. This allows the vehicle to go as much as an additional 600 miles with a composite fuel economy of around 150 miles a gallon. The key to getting Volt on the road is advanced lithium-ion battery technology. Our, internal, our internal tests have showed that individual lithium-ion cells scaled up to the pack level will deliver the required power and range. We've run prototype packs through numerous tests since last fall, including some pretty severe ones, and the results to date are quite encouraging. And importantly, the vehicle side of the Volt program is being engineered in parallel with battery development. Typically, we develop new technology, things like this battery and propulsion system, well before we kick off a production vehicle program itself. But given the huge potential that eFlex offers to reduce oil consumption, reduce oil imports, and reduce CO2 emissions, we're developing the Volt with all the urgency we can muster, and we remain focused today on a target of getting the Volt into the Chevy showroom by the end of 2010. 
So at GM, we believe that electrically driven vehicles are the best long-term solution we have for addressing society's energy and environmental concerns. As I've said, we're also working on a number of other advanced propulsion technologies, and I'd be happy to talk about any of them during our question and answer session. For now, let me just say that we're working on a range of real-world, real-time technologies that will make a difference, in some cases a tremendous difference, in promoting energy security at home and addressing global climate change. But to do this, it's also important that we have an honest conversation about what's required to bring these technologies to market in volume. In short, we need a strong commitment from all success sectors of our society to develop and implement the technologies that will allow us to deliver our mutual goals. We as automakers need to take the lead here by developing the technologies and then driving their costs down. We understand this. We're prepared to do this. But there are important roles for others as well. Consumers, for example, have a critical role to play. Perhaps... We appreciate the passion for the topic, and we share it. <laughs> Perhaps most important, they must be willing to pay, consumers must be willing to pay for the value of higher, higher fuel economy, because technology by itself is of little consequence if it isn't eventually put to use by consumers on a very large scale. Take the EV1, which is actually a textbook example of a truly impressive technology that mass market consumers were simply not willing to pay for. Some, by the way, were more than willing to pay for it. In fact, some were absolutely passionate about their EVs. Gloria Duffia makes, makes that very clear in her April Insight column, in fact. But to make a difference, technology has to be adopted by lots of consumers, in fact, by a significant portion of the driving public. And that's what we're shooting for at GM with the technologies we're developing today. One of the things that government can do, and I'd argue one of the things that government has to do to really promote energy diversity, is proactively support the development of alternative fuel technology, whether that's biofuels or fuel cells or advanced batteries, and incentivize consumers through tax credits, fuel subsidies, and so on, to adopt these exciting new technologies in a big way. A great example of how government can step up to the plate is illustrated by California's Alternative and Renewable Fuel and Vehicle Technology Program, AB 118. AB 118 authorizes the State Energy Commission to award about $120 million annually through 2015 to develop innovative vehicle technologies that help encourage increased production and greater availability of a low-carbon fuel and technologies in California without picking winners and losers. Needless to say, though, not everyone will agree on every proposal. In fact, we probably just saw an example of that. <laughs> One proposal that is particularly in this category is an individual state's right to, in effect, set its own fuel economy standards. Energy and environment are critical re issues with a lot of public interest. We understand that, and we understand that in the passion to address these issues as completely as possible, a number of states, California first among them, would like to go beyond the targets set by the new national federal energy legislation. But from our perspective, climate change is a global issue. And in that sense, our nation needs one comprehensive standard for autos rather than a series of geographically based solutions. Nationwide standards allow the auto industry's efforts to be part of a comprehensive national climate change program, one that fairly allocates the contributions among all sectors of the economy and enables us to achieve the, the optimal results in the, in the most rapid possible time period. If we focus our efforts, or if we have to focus our efforts, on meeting numerous different state targets instead of a single national target, which is already pretty aggressive and is going to take, take a lot of work to meet, then we're not going to accomplish everything we otherwise could have. We're actually already seeing this right now in the European Union, where member states are using different structures and incentives to achieve CO2 reductions. Right now, this approach is fragmenting our engineering efforts in order to meet different standards in different markets. Over time, this will actually make it harder 
to maximize CO2 reductions as rapidly as we otherwise could. And the same thing could happen here in the states. By fragmenting our efforts, we'll only make it that much harder to achieve the end results that we all want to see. Beyond the auto industry and consumers and government, there's also a critical role for environmental organizations and other businesses, like those in oil, chemical, and electrical utility industries. One place where these interests have converged is the United States Climate Action Partnership. USCAP addresses climate change through advanced technology on an economy-wide basis and on a market-driven basis. GM was proud to be the first automaker to join that nonpartisan's group call for action about a year ago. Earlier this year, USCAP issued a set of principles and recommendations aimed at slowing, stopping, and ultimately reversing the growth of greenhouse gas emissions over the shortest period of time reasonably achievable. At GM, we applaud this approach. We believe in this approach, and we look forward to working with USCAP and our fellow members to achieve these goals. So I started my remarks today by mentioning the meeting that I had in February with the leaders of, of the Commonwealth Club's Climate One project. By the end of that meeting, I think it's fair to say that I found that we actually have more in common than I might have thought when we first got together. We share many of the same goals, and ultimately, we're after the same results. Late in the conversation, we got talking about our first cars, the ones that we bought with our own money. Mine was a 1973 Chevy Camaro. 35 years ago, it cost 3500 bucks. Hard-earned cash coming mostly from cutting lawns at $2 a piece. By the way, that's a lot of lawns. Come to find, no surprise really, that most of us in that group that day had started out driving American cars, and mostly General Motors cars, I'm happy to report. Chevys, Pontiacs, GMC trucks, Buicks, Cadillacs. That was a very important reminder for me that when you get right down to it, lots of San Franciscans want General Motors to succeed here and in California and around the world in general and especially in environmental and energy leadership. That to me is great news, a real opportunity for us at General Motors. And we're determined to take full advantage of that opportunity by giving you a reason to come back to GM with great cars, outstanding designs, and the best environmental technology in the business. Stay tuned, and thank you. Our thanks to Rick Wagner, Chairman and CEO of General Motors, for his comments today here at the Commonwealth Club. Now we'll begin our question and answer period. Um, you touched on fuels, and we have a number of questions from the audience about fuels, both the price of fuels and, and the types of fuels. Uh, and I'll combine a couple of them. Uh, one is, why did GM plan its business model in all U.S. auto companies on $40 uh, barrel of oil? I think it's up around 120 now. So did you anticipate the spike uh, in, in fuel costs, oil costs. And there's also questions about, about ethanol, and GM has a little different view on ethanol than some people who are critical of ethanol and the net gain, greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera. So you could speak to, uh, to ethanol and the price of fuel. Yep. I, I suspect we, like every other honest uh, business person in the U.S., uh, if they're telling you the truth, would not have foreseen oil prices spiking up to this current level. If I look back a couple of years ago, we were working with a band, uh, knowing that we'd never get the point forecast right, of uh, fuel, uh, fuel costs that would have run, you know, let's say in the 40 to $80 a barrel, and then as prices went up, you know, we adjusted that range up. But I think fair to say we would have put a very low guess at $100, $110 a barrel. In retrospect, if you think back, what did we, and I think, I think a lot of people miss there, um, is that for so many years, oil has basically been a cyclical um, commodity. And, um, you know, actually the real prices of oil had gone down for a very, very long period of time after it hit, hitting peaks in the late, uh, late 70s, early 80s. But what happened is we have a dramatic structural increase in the demand for oil globally. I talked, uh, mentioned in my speech about the growth of um, the vehicle sales in places like China and Russia and the growth of those economies is taking a, a lot of the, the, the demand for energy and putting it at different levels. So I think if, you know, if one had thought about that the right way, it's not surprising that oil prices are up. 
you know, maybe the current levels are a bit surprising. Um, but I think um, given, and by the way, I, I should say if you um, go back to the early 90s, I remember the, the toughest times I would have in any, our, in any of our board meetings were the fact um, that we did not have enough capacity to meet the demand for trucks in those days. Um, and it's because oil prices were going down and, you know, consumers, frankly, were acting, hey, if I can get a big vehicle, I'm going to do it because oil is so cheap. In that sense, um, you know, it reminds me that a lot of what goes on here is market-driven. And while I'm, I'm not particularly happy to see oil at $100 a barrel, I don't think anybody is, I do think it is um, sort of sets our mindset to what the future is going to be more like. I mean, I can't tell you the oil is going to be $110 a barrel a year from now but I'm pretty sure it's not going back to 40 or 50. On the topic of ethanol, fits right in here. Um, we are concerned, um, and I think all of us should be concerned, with the point that the demand for oil is going up and the supply you know, is limited and the concentration of the supply is also of concern. And um, the demand for energy is going to likely keep going up no matter how hard we work at, at conservation, particularly when you consider the growth of the emerging markets. We think it makes sense to develop try to develop biofuels, and um, I had a chance to sort of live through the experience of Brazil developing its ethanol program, and I, I actually, Monday uh, of this week, was with a group of Brazilian business and government leaders in Washington, um, and, you know, they, you know, they feel like that's been a tremendous success for them, and, and frankly, I think the Brazilians are looking quite smart now. They're exporting the oil that they produce as well as the ethanol, which they grow quite efficiently with their, with their sugarcane approach. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense to develop um, alternatives to oil, and uh, we think that ethanol makes sense. We're sensitive to the fact that um, the use of grain-based ethanol has a natural limit, um, and so this idea of, of really expanding cellulosic makes a lot of sense, and we've made some small investments and partnered with some of the leaders in in the industry there, and if that can develop, I think it could provide a tremendous help in balancing this growth of, of petroleum, and a lot of the cellulosic processes in their early stage seem to offer tremendous advantages in things like water usage. Uh, CO2 emissions are, are down generally to 15 percent of what you see in, from petroleum products, and they have a vision of being cost competitive with petroleum products or even lower cost. We think it's worthwhile trying to develop that. Though the uh Corn ethanol has been around for a long time. You've made a lot of flex fuel vehicles that can run on corn ethanol, and yet certainly in California and lots of parts of the country, people can't buy it. And so there's a supply right. and infrastructure question as well as a little bit on the, the – there's a lot of petroleum used in the processing and transportation of corn ethanol that may not make it such a great gain. Yeah, I, I, th I think you're right, Greg. I think it a uh, little depends on, you know, it may be something that's better suited for use in certain geographies. But your point about infrastructure is exactly right. And by the way, this is one of the biggest things I learned from our EV1 effort. We spent a lot of money, you know, in today's terms, I'm sure the equivalent of, you know, like a billion dollars to bring the EV1 uh, to market. And I was really somewhat surprised that we then had to spend a lot of money to put in the charging stations because um, there wasn't an infrastructure to charge the electric vehicles. And now we find ourselves with a relatively simple conversion to allow refueling stations to offer ethanol, finding a lot of resistance to that. And so something like 1,500 out of 170,000 gas stations in the U.S. offer ethanol. So your point about, and I, and I tried to make it in my speech, any new technology that moves away from, from oil that we use is really going to have to be accompanied by a thoughtful approach to infrastructure where consumers are not going to feel good about it. I mean, if you buy today an E85-powered vehicle and you can't buy ethanol, you're not very happy about it. number of questions about uh, relative competitiveness and leadership relative to, to competitors. Um, one question is, why can't GM produce a car as fuel-efficient as the Prius what took GM so long and other U.S. companies uh, investing in high-mileage technology? And, and uh, it seems to some people that America's, all American automakers are playing catch-up again to the Japanese on hybrids and, and battery technology. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't actually think it's true in battery-powered, uh, electrically-driven vehicles. But, I mean, just to the, um, frankly, we, we work in in markets and run against consumer demand. I think many of you know we've, we've been operating in Europe uh, for, you know, for mo most of our century that we've been in business. And there you can buy uh, small or mid-size uh, 
mostly Opel, Vauxhall, or Chevy products that get fuel economy that are competitive with the best of the European models. The reason we can do that, we've hit historically been able to do that, is that it's, um, there's a lot of consumer demand for it. If you look in the U.S., I mean, and I don't think it's broadly known, but, and I asked this audience, which, which auto company offers more vehicles that get 30 miles per gallon highway than any other manufacturer? I suspect few of you would say General Motors. In fact, it is General Motors. We have more uh, vehicles that are highly fuel efficient than any other manufacturer. So we do have the capability, um, and I think, frankly, as, as the fuel prices go up, you know, you will see us um, talking more about this, and um, you will see us continuing to fight to raise the bar to have fuel economy leaders in every segment. We have them in a lot of segments now. On the, on the hybrids, I think it's a very, very fair point. Um, the hybrid technology was, was developed first um, in Japan, brought to the U.S., um, started out, let's be honest, rather slowly and then began to pick up a lot of interest. Um, having gone through the experience with the EV1 here, um, my take on that was you really had to make sure that whatever technology you were bringing could work against the infrastructure that you have, which hybrids do, and um, brought the consumer as much value as the technology cost. And that is back when gas was 250 a gallon. That was a little bit tough for, for, for a hybrid to do. Mm-hmm. And so what we said, look, we ought, to, we ought to follow the technology, but let's work on the technology we think might actually be lower cost or equal cost to a, a pure internal combustion engine at one point. And so th- we really thought maybe fuel cells would have the best chance long term to be the lowest cost solution. You know, as things develop, uh, clearly um, hybrid costs have come down somewhat, energy costs have gone up. We said, boy, we've got to run hard to get in that game. So we were late, but I think it's fair to say by the end of this year we'll have, we'll have eight models that offer two different kinds of hybrid systems in the U.S. So we're very much in the game, and I think it's still early, early stages. So we're, we're committed to, to, to play very hard there, and as, as we are in the other technologies that I discussed in my speech. So if I recall earlier, you said your, your premise for forecast for the cost of uh, barrel of oil is, is north of 50? I mean, Sure, yeah. And question here about could you bring back an EV2? A person says here they, they drove here in their Toyota electric car. Uh, could you bring out a simplified version of the EV1? Uh, call it the EV2. Uh, and other people asking here about, about pure electrics. Well, we're, um, we're open to all ideas on naming and marketing strategies, so I'll take that one back. I appreciate it. As we sit here today, and, and, and I think as this lithium-ion battery technology uh, uh, develops itself, uh, the direct answer to the question is certainly entirely possible. But looking at the year 2010, w- we are pushing the needle on trying to use um, uh, the, the battery technology that's available and get what we thought was the sweet spot of, of a commuter distance. And, you know, so we did the research and found 40 miles would be get 75 percent of the commuters. And, and then the trade-off is, you know, how many more batteries do you want to put on and the cost of those batteries? So I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, this Tesla product, which is really neat, is coming out. You know, that's all, all battery-driven and electrically driven, and, you know, they, they're able to do it. You know, frankly, if we could sell, you know, all of our vehicles for $100,000, it'd give us a little more flexibility, too. But, and, hey, I, I like that. I'd like to do a lot of that myself, too. So, uh, but, but I, you know, what, we need, what we're trying to do is get to a more mainstream price point so we're trying to balance off um, electrical or how, how much battery we put on. Also, this issue of range is important. A lot of people want a vehicle that if they need it to take them three, 400 miles, they want that range. And uh, so, you know, we're kind of working with a sweet spot. The focus for the Volt is, as I stated, 40 miles. And then with, with the small ancillary power unit to repower the battery um, to get us Another three, four, maybe in extreme cases, 500 miles. But over time, as the technology develops, we'll actually have the option. Do you want to increase the battery range, uh, increase the vehicle range using the better and better batteries, or do you want to take the cost of that, the vehicle down by keeping the range and then sharing the, the lower cost of, of the more efficient battery with consumers? And I think we're going to learn about that as we, as we get these vehicles to market. I think it's interesting to underline that, that- the Volt takes the Prius and kind of turns it upside down or advances, the, whereas the Prius is an internal combustion engine supported by electric. The Volt is electric supported by internal combustion. Uh, and I've had a chance to see some of that. I think one of the questions is... Don't describe the car. The, the, oh, the, the, uh, he uh, saw the real one, so yeah. he's one of the few uh, living humans that has done that. 
But one of the Toyota, presumably, I'm not sure we really know if they're losing money on, on Priuses. Initially, they did. So um, how aggressively is GM going to market a car, the Volt, which I think you acknowledge you're going to lose money on, at least initially? And so how, how sustainable is that when your you're, market force is at play? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you can't. As I tell you guys, we have to have a vision for profitability on the vehicle. I couldn't sell to the shareholders doing it if we didn't have a vision for profitability. Having said it, this is an all-new technology. Um, it, you know, I think it's unreasonable to expect the technology is going to be competitive with an internal combustion engine that we've been perfecting for, you know, 100 years from a cost perspective. So, obviously, early on, um, you know, we won't be making a lot of money, but I put that in the category of kind of advanced development and learning and, you know, investment for the future. Um, so we are going to bring the car out. We're going to market aggressively. Um, we're not going to price it as low as some people would like, and we're not going to price it as high as some people think. Um, and our, our strategy very clearly is well, let's get, some, get the vehicles out, get learnings um, in real-world customers. And meanwhile, we've got people back at the ranch already working on Gen 2 batteries and Gen 2 propulsion systems to try to get down that that cost curve over time. And, you know, we've got in our mind a long-term vision cost for this battery, battery-driven vehicle, and we think, hey, at the kind of value that it presents to consumers, you know, it ought to, it ought to be able to make money. One other point I want to emphasize here that everybody here can play a role in, part of the issue of early-stage technology, the nature of them is they're not money-making. Consumers, other than people that are really passionate and sort of want to be ahead on technologies, don't want to pay more than the value they perceive. And so the, the way to fix this is obviously encourage government incentives. And so we do have some incentives on hybrids, and that helps. And we hope to be able to extend that. And I would say that's kind of everybody pitching in to, you know, to help advance these technologies to scale and, and would hope as we, as we ramp up on battery technology that we'll get good support from, you know, from Washington on, on those kind of incentives continuing. Our guest today at the Commonwealth Club of California is GM Chairman and CEO Rick Wagner. Uh, Mr. Wagner, in the 1990s, GM uh, had a leadership position with, with the electric car, was first to market among a major uh, US, U.S. manufacturer. And there's a question now whether uh, General Motors can be a green car company with the Volt and everything else while also litigating against the state of California and fighting CAFE standards and fighting uh, U.S.-California uh, legislation. Does that, how does that play out in your mind in terms of the messages it sends about the company and to consumers? Well, I mean, it's, it's, let's face it, it's a pretty tough environment. I mean, ultimately, we're, uh, what we're trying to do uh, from the standpoint of technology is make sure that we have the capability that um, anyone in the industry has and hopefully have the best capability from a technology perspective to provide it to consumers. Um, from the standpoint of the legislation here that's being fought in California, frankly, that's not a General Motors issue. That's an auto industry issue, and the whole industry is 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 uh, been against the legislation because I think the view has been that it's it's more than we can reasonably do, and frankly, the only way we can meet some of the current proposed legislation is simply stop offering vehicles that don't meet the standards here in the state. So uh, that seems to us a rather you know a rather tough resolution of the issue. So you know we do have new a new national uh, standard. It's tough, I can tell you. And so our view is, hey, let, you know, let us run after that. Um, and, uh, you know, if we do that, we will all, uh, you know, as, as a nation and certainly participate here in California, really make a difference in, in this whole issue of energy security and, and um, CO2 emissions. You know, frankly, it's not our purpose in life to, to, to be fighting any, any state government. And fortunately, we don't have to do it a lot. And we don't particularly want that to be viewed as our image, or we certainly don't. But... You know, we've also got a, got, a, got we have a responsibility to put our voice into the legislative process to say, here's what we think we can do under these circumstances. And if we think it's something we just can't do, then, then we need to make that statement uh, along with our colleagues in the auto industry. As I understand, the difficulty in meeting some of those standards is partly the product mix, the, the, the mix of cars that are sold. And if high gas prices are driving people to smaller cars anyways, isn't that going to work in the direction of greater fuel efficiency? The market high oil prices are going to drive people to smaller cars regardless of uh, in addition to legislation? Yeah, it, 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 it certainly will. And we're seeing that, by the way. I mean, if you look at the development in the market on the trends of segment demand, 
you know, large sport utility demand is a lot smaller today than it was four years ago, maybe, maybe running about half. So I think consumers are acting pretty rationally. Uh, the other day, or I think it was yesterday, we, we announced that we were introducing a version of our, of our small car, the Chevy Cobalt, which gets the leading fuel economy in the segment, 36 miles per gallon. The average uh, car for the whole range of cars or requirement in 2015, according to the new EPA legislation, is, is 36. So we've got a lot of work to do to meet, to meet the legislation on the table, and you know, we're, we're, we're up for the game and going at it. But, I mean, I think that describes to people how across the segment we're going to have to move from kind of get, get across the whole car segment what the best vehicles in, in the small car category get today. So there's a lot of work to do to, to meet those standards. Uh, General Electric and Kleiner Perkins recently invested in Think, which is an auto company that was originally hatched at Ford and sold a couple of times. Uh, and they say they'll have an all-electric car for sale in the U.S. next year. Uh, will innovations like this, is it possible that startups and, and other companies that don't have the legacy costs and other things that you have will be the sources of innovation and get electrics on the road? And what would that, how would that affect GM? Could, could be. Um, we've learned uh, in our, our long time in business never to underestimate competitors. I, I would say from the standpoint of the issues which may have uh, kept us from being able to invest and compete historically, I think we're getting those behind us, as I mentioned in my speech. Um, what we have found is there's a number of new startups, auto business around the world, and you know, by really smart people with in technologies that when I sit with them, I'm very impressed. But, uh, frankly, getting a car to mass production at uh, consumer-expected quality and cost levels and, very importantly, meeting all the regulatory requirements, crash regulation, safety regulation, um, it's a big job. And, and so my sense is, in high volume, uh, this, this is a tough game to compete against unless you've got a whole lot of product development engineers. So we'll see how it develops. It's possible that may, there might be a different regulatory regime for um, you know, certain kinds of vehicles for a while. We see that in Japan, for example, f with many cars. But I think over time, you know, we, we, we have a, a natural advantage by virtue of our experience here and our depth of technology, and, and we, plan, we, you know, we plan to win. So we welcome the competition, but you know, I, I expect when I come back to see in 10 years, we're, we're going to be, um, we're, there may be other guys in, but, but we're going to be planned to be leading the parade in this area. Great. Uh, where do you lead the, draw the line between giving GM customers what they want and leading your customers? You know, and that's an interesting philosophical question sure. about what your role is marketing. And also, um, how do you consider marketing to women in, when you sell cars? Um, the, on the former question, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question because, you know, the ideal thing we do, I mean, every, every Friday morning we meet in design at 7 o'clock and we look at the, the latest designs and how they clinic. And we usually feel pretty good. Um, we, we love it if people are wild about the design we're clinicking, but that car isn't going to be in the market for three years. So what we really are interested in, um, if people don't rank it as highest, we're interested in why don't they rank it highest. And if they say it looks uh, future, a little too futuristic, then you go, I think we're in the right place. So, you know, it's that process that we have to go through, whether it's technology, whether it's, you know, electronic standards. We want to be, if we have something that consumers really can't deal with, you know, we lose. But, but if we're just, you know, right in the sweet spot, you know, that, that's how you win in the business. So we do. I mean, we do want to be a little, you know, a little ahead in, in these technologies. Having said that, though, I mean, the reaction to the Volt, if we can deliver on what we want, uh, I don't think we're going to have to create a market there. I, you know, we are going to struggle through what's the optimal price point in, in early volumes, but I think consumers are ready for that kind of car, so it's, so it's not as hard. On the issue of um, marketing to women, we were talking a little bit before, you know, that the women influence a, 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 a dramatically disproportionate amount of vehicle sales. And so the answer is, you know, we need... We need to listen um, to uh, female consumers, but frankly, the most important thing we can do is have more women in the right positions in our company because, you know, you get that then naturally as part of all the vehicle design or, or engineering. And while I think our industry still has a good ways to go, if I just look at the number of women we have who are plant managers or um, running design studios or chief engineers on product programs, it, it's, it's been a, a noticeable change over the last 10 years, and, um, you know, we just got to keep pushing that because, you know, 
if we have a, if we sit and have a, and this is true, I guess, in general adversity, but if we sit and have a product discussion and have people from different countries or women versus men represented, we have, we have a more rich discussion. So it's, it's, it's an important topic for us. Is that also in the executive ranks? Yep. Yep. We've consistently grown the percentage of women executives. And I think maybe even more interesting, um, the, the women rep- represented in executive positions in manufacturing um, and engineering has continued to rise. Um, it's something we need to keep working at, though, because there, there, there are, there are um, a lot of competition for the, for the best students, in, including women. Uh, if you look at the graduates from engineering schools, still a little more heavily skewed to male. And, and so we, you know, we can't just let the system work. We, we, we have to um, work the system ourselves to make sure we can attract a disproportionate number of women and then work hard to, to make sure they get a fair chance to develop their career. And I, I'd say I think we're doing better, uh, much better today than 10 years ago, and I think we can still do a lot, a lot better than we're doing today. Our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is GM Chairman and CEO Rick Wagner. Uh, Mr. Wagner, one of our questioners refers to a 1998 press release from uh, your predecessor, Roger Smith, that, that sounds very much like today's campaign of gas-friendly to gas-free, and it talks about fuel cell cars in showrooms by 2004 or earlier, and we're here today, and they still can't buy a fuel cell car, and to some people, fuel cells always seem like they're 10 years away, and they never seem to, to arrive, so could you speak to that? Yeah, I think it was Jack Smith, not Roger, if it was okay. 1998, because I think Roger had retired by then, okay. but uh, we, had, we had a lot of Smiths in the GM leadership back in those days. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, to be honest, fuel cells have a bit of that reputation. I think the fact that we're sitting here today and I'm telling you that we're able to put um, 100 fuel cells into consumers' hands for kind of, they go and drive it home for three months and then we give it to somebody else to try is an indication that progress is being made. Um, And, you know, what we've done, our, our view is that if we take, like, fourth generation fuel cell stack, which is what we have today, and ramp that up to mass production, what we're doing is ramping up a system that is really not very cost competitive into an environment where we don't have a good infrastructure to refuel. And so we said, look, let's keep working the technology. Let's, frankly, the, these 100 cars cost a lot of money, but let's, let's build enough to get them in consumers' hands, but let's m- spend most of our technical ex- expertise continuing to the fifth generation and the sixth generation stack. So I personally believe there is promise and that it will come one day. I'm not so sure that it will come here to the U.S. first, though. This could be a, a, the kind of technology, given how much infrastructure and alignment it requires, you might see it, you know, one day first in a, in a country like China instead of the U.S. Um, so, you know, we just want to be at the head of the parade wherever, wherever that one starts. And that's a good segue to some of these questions, which are about what uh, the strategy for GM is in India and in China, places where there's, there's larger urban centers, the economics, people can't afford a $40,000 SUV, and, and uh, also the, the environmental impact of China and India. Yeah. Um, so our strategy there is, frankly, what it is here, which is to offer the best products we can that people in those markets want to buy. So Chevy is a huge brand for us, but if you look at the Chevy product portfolio in India, it looks very different, not completely different, but very different from the Chevy product portfolio in the U.S. because India is a huge mini-car market, um, as an example. So we have to develop and sell products in the local market that, that work for that that population. The second part of the question, I mean, is I mean, it's it's a fundamental issue. So we have developing countries, and you know, I think um, you know, fairly stated by then, they want the same chance to develop, and they want the same chance for their people to advance, like we've had in the U.S. and Western Europe. And and part of that, one of the one of the significant aspirational um, aspects of a developing country, you find people first, you know, want to you know want to have a good place to live, and second, they want to buy cars, which is good for us. Trouble is, if everybody does it, then it puts a lot of pressure on oil prices, and and it has impacts for CO2 emissions. Hence, you know, the clarity around the point that we need to really get on to the topic of developing cost-effective alternatives for those those markets. Um, that is, by the way, philosophically, we, we we don't do everything for for these markets around the world in the U.S. We have big engineering centers, big manufacturing capability, kind of in each market. Our general philosophy is build where you sell because we think 
We know the customers best that way, but we try to share technology and other capabilities so we, we raise the standard um, in every market that we play around the world. One question referring to other countries says that 35 miles per gallon seems to be low a fuel efficiency goal given what is achieved in other countries in Europe and perhaps even in China. So could you speak to the differential in fuel economies among markets? Yeah, very much driven um, by, I would say, one single factor, which is fuel prices. So in Europe, as you go around Europe, uh, from country to country, you know, get, you'll get fuel prices that will range you know, anywhere probably at the very bottom, you know, from 4 to $5 a gallon equivalent to 8 to $10 gallon equivalent. And this is not news for them. This has been going on for, for 50 years, and it's basically driven by um, very um, – much more aggressive than we have uh, taxation policies, and consumers react rationally. What is interesting is that, you know, you go to a place like Germany and um, relatively wealthy people there buy highly equipped small cars because, you know, the the day-to-day cost of commuting is high, and so they they buy smaller vehicles. And, uh, you know, here in the U.S., what we've had for years and years is very low-cost energy, and I think consumers have acted acted in a a rational way. Um, And I have not seen you know, the first political candidate yet who says, let's raise gas taxes in order to drive consumer behavior. And uh, so, you know, I think we have to recognize this is all only going to work if consumers are in the game. Um, We are not going to force consumers into a different size or kind of vehicle than they want to buy. And so we really need to get alignment of the cost of energy, the kind of technologies we can offer, the infrastructures to support it, my sense is that um, as a nation, we are building into some of the directions that we've seen in other places around the world. Uh, related question to other countries, you mentioned tax policy. Uh, this is a question about single-payer health care and how that would affect your competitiveness. And there's another question about uh, health care costs in Canada, where a lot of cars are assembled, and their health care costs are not on the company books, they're on the national books. So would you, what's your position on single-payer health care and how that would affect the auto industry? Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, long outspoken on the fact that the health care cost in the U.S. is significantly damaging the manufacturing competitiveness of this country and the competitiveness of the whole economy, and I, and I, and I continue to feel that that, that is true. Um, what, what I haven't sensed is a, a significant political consensus on the uh, who should pay for the health care in the U.S., and it you know, ranges from single-payer to, to, to you know, individual kind of market-driven. And so w- what our focus has been, as we've talked about health care, things that we need to do under either system to improve the efficiency and cost of health care. So things like you know, smart application and aggressive application of information technology could be driven by the government with its Medicare purchasing practice. We should really do that, and it would really help a lot in improving efficiency and cost. Use of performance data to um, inform consumers. You know, the ironic aspect, if you want to go buy a mid-sized car, you can learn more about quality performance than you can in many communities if you're going to go get open-heart surgery about, you know, which hospitals are better than others. So we need to get that kind of quality information to consumers. And I have, I have felt personally that um, government has a role that they need to play in catastrophic insurance because the catastrophic cases cost so much that it is driving small businesses and really large businesses to get out of the healthcare care business. So that would be my take on the right solution. I don't think there's a consensus in the U.S. for single payers. And I would just add in Canada with the strength of the Canadian dollar and the fact that their health care system is getting more expensive, um, the advantage that we really saw in real terms 10 years ago in Canada for manufacturing is, 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 is unfortunately evaporated now by virtue of both of those things moving, moving the wrong way. We've talked about consumers and, and regulation. This is a question about Wall Street uh, and ask whether our environment can survive capitalism uh, you know, and uh, whether Wall Street is, is forgiving or supportive of the types of things that companies are trying to do that introduce new technology that might cost more in the short term. And can that, is that compatible with sort of the, the slavery to quarterly profits? Um, I, I think the tone on that matter has changed quite a bit over the last five years. Um, I don't think you would get a lot of support for, hey, I'm going to do this great technology and it's going to improve the environment and I'm, I'm never going to be able to make any money on it. So one of the jobs we have as management is to 
you know, develop technologies going back to my view that we have a vision for com uh, uh, competitiveness and profitability on where we can get a competitive advantage. And I think if we can if we can do that effectively, I you know I don't I don't think that um, I think our shareholders would you know would be um, in favor of that and willing to invest some in the short term to get the long term advantage. Um, we, I get more questions today when I meet with analysts about well, what what are the impact what is the impact of these. Um, new fuel economy regulations, how does that inf impact the profitability of your business? So it's very much on people's minds, and, you know, we, we don't have an option to not comply with laws, so, you know, we've really got to think from a competitive perspective how we can meet those regulations and, you know, provide con consumers value, get a good return on our investments, and ideally over time even be advantaged versus our competitors. Another question on, on uh, national policy. Uh, next month, the Warner-Lieberman bill comes up for a vote in the Senate, and you mentioned U.S. CAP. Could you comment a little more about that specific bill, and where do you think we will be a uh, year, two years from now in terms of carbon cap and trade and a price on carbon in the marketplace? Yeah, I think um, taking the second question first, my sense is may depend a little bit on, I guess may depend a lot on how the elections come out eventually this round, but seems to be momentum building around the idea of, you know, caps and trades and putting value in. Um, I think what what will be the, you know, the real test here is when, when people begin to realize, you know, what this means to them economically. If you happen to be, for example, in a place where you benefited from low-cost energy that comes out of, you know, coal, and all of a sudden that provider has to, you know, make radical investments to reduce emissions, and so your, your monthly energy bill is going up, you know, we're going to have to get through that. People are going to have to um, absorb and, and understand that piece of it. If we can, I think the prospects are, 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 are quite good. Um, you know, our view is that um, you know, we've really, in effect, been fairly highly regulated in this matter on the auto industry for a long time. Some would argue not enough. Some would argue more than enough. It's not necessarily true of other sectors. And so what we like about the concept of U.S. CAP is looking at it economy-wide so we can go to the, you know, the least cost way to achieve the most uh, CO2 uh, emissions reductions as rapidly as possible. So that makes a lot of sense. And if that happens to be more in auto than stationary power, fine. If that happens to be more in stationary power in auto, that's fine. But let's do it in a way that gets – because the, the environment doesn't distinguish where the CO2 came from. If it came from stationary power, it came from cars, the same thing. So let's, let's do it in the most cost-efficient and rapid way we can. And I think the U.S. CAP discussion – has brought a more intelligent debate around that than, than I've seen before. Warner Lieberman, as I understand it, I, I think in the right direction. I think the, some of the data behind it's pretty tough. So I don't know if I don't I don't know if if they've got you know the numbers that I would say are are the ones that are doable. But certainly it has stimulated I think the right kind of debate. And as you're sitting there leading a global company, European standards, as I understand them generally, are, are tougher already than Warner-Lieberman. And so do you, when you're thinking about planning your strategy, do you aim for the higher, tougher European standards or try to come in between U.S. and, and European? Well, I mean, we, we, most of the products that we develop now, we're actually developing off what we call global architecture. So we develop into global standards. Um, but what, you know, what we um, then have to layer against that is so, so what do people want to buy and, um, you know, what are the specific local, lo local regulations. And so, as I said, in Europe, it, the CO2 emissions per vehicle, you know, might be less, but it's, you know, it's basically because the vehicle mix is smaller. So, you know, frankly, we're ready to run against that if that's, you know, if that's the direction U.S. consumers go. And I think if oil prices stay at their current levels, we will move more in that direction, although I suspect, you know, given the specific aspects of this market, you know, just the scope and size and some of the traditions, I suspect we won't move completely there, but I, I think it'll come closer together. You mentioned the presidential campaign, and two of the candidates have proposed 50 miles a gallon uh, by, I think, 2025 or so. Is that something that would be achievable? It sounds, uh, under the current regime, pretty tough, uh, to be perfectly candid. The current standards we have, you know, we, I would say that um, reasonably comfortable in the near-term years, and as we get farther out, um, if we apply most of the technologies we know today, we you know, we have trouble meeting the numbers, so we have to have some more invention. So I, as I hear the numbers that you cited from the two candidates, I said that's, that's pr pretty tough. I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to be easy to do unless we get a radical change in, you know, in the, in the mix of vehicles sold and things of that sort. So we'll be anxiously watching those developments. Well, we're getting here toward the end, and uh, one thing I'd like to 
to notice is that we've noticed recently in the, in the national debate among political leaders and corporate leaders that a lot of them say their children are, are what's motivating them to, to move on, on global warming. I've heard this from GM people. You know, what are you doing th- today, Dad, to solve the problem? So I'm curious how your kids are, are viewed on, on global warming and uh, uh, what you think uh, you would like your legacy to be as the General Motors chairman 20 years from now. You mentioned that earlier. Yeah, I don't, I don't actually have to wait for my kids to tell me what to do. I get a lot of input from my wife on this, to be perfectly candid. So, And, and she's pretty clear on the direction that we should be going. So, so I, I get it there and then, you know, m- moves on. Look, I mean, I, th- I think we are entering, um, I think the auto industry is absolutely moving into the most exciting 20-year period that we've had since our beginning. If you go back to the beginning of the industry 110 years ago, there were several different competing forms of propulsion, steam engine, electric, gas, and finally it's sorted down to one. I think in a way today we're kind of going back into the same um, mm-hmm. sort of uncertain but exciting future. Is, is our, our battery powered going to win? Our fuel cells going to win? Our, our biofuels going to win? Our hybrids going to win? And we basically are now opening up to try a bunch of stuff that we haven't done a lot of over our history. And so I think the next 20 years are exciting. My goal for, for GM over this period is to reestablish our preeminence, not only as a design and product leader, but as a technology leader. Because if you look back a lot of the 100 years of the auto industry, GM has been, a, has been a leader. And I can't think of an area that's more important that we lead right now than in this advanced propulsion area. So we're running the business like that internally. We're assigning our resources that way internally. And that's, you know, that's what we want to do over the next, next 10 and 20 years. Our thanks to Rick Wagner, Chairman and CEO of General Motors, for his comments here at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.